0: Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. That's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our first segment, my guest is Barry Ewell, Senior Marketing Manager for IBM, who is also a writer and researcher with extensive genealogical experience in internet and field research, digital and software resources, and mentoring genealogists. We're going to be talking about his reasons for researching his family history, how to be a Sherlock Holmes, and getting the focus off just collecting names.
1: I stopped searching for names and I really start searching for people, places and the environment in which they lived and that and that just sped up my research. So this three sixty is my ancestor lived in seventeen fifty in the middle of Virginia. What records were being developed, what was the interaction, what were the churches that were in the community, where did they come from? And so then it just it just began to, to open up so many more opportunities for me and then when I started doing quote unquote looking for the name I, I understood the signs. In my research, really, I mean, it went from finding one or two names to really finding generations with the same amount of work and the same level and, and looking in the same records. They were always there. I just didn't know what I was looking for.
0: Then in our second segment, I'm going to be covering the variety of genealogical records available and helping them make some choices about how to obtain them. I attended the Family History Expo in Mesa, Arizona, a two-day conference jam-packed with genealogy classes, activities, and exhibitors. Well, while I was there, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to talk with Barry Ewell, a genealogy writer, researcher, and instructor. Here's my conversation with him. Well, I'm really happy to have a chance to pull Barry Ewell aside. Um, I know that you've been busy today, Barry, teaching classes and running around the conference center here. Are you having a good time?
1: Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's a joy to, to be part of um, Family History Expo.
0: Yeah, this is really exciting. The, the Mesa turnout has just been terrific. I know, I'm mm-hmm. hoping there will be more in the future.
1: They do a nice job. I mean, it's, it's more than just a genealogy fair. It's, they pull together good people and a good set of vendors, and it's just a nice, a, a nice foundation.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background and what brings you to conferences to be teaching, and what you do in your uh, other life outside of genealogy.
1: Um, in my real real life, um, I worked for IBM as uh, in marketing, and that's enough said there. I I got involved in uh, conference speaking really just kind of by by chance uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I was working I was at BYU doing a, quite an extensive research on. On newspapers, and I was going through a hundred years worth of of local local hometown papers and searching for family and, and anything that had to do with it. And when I finished the uh, research, it took about uh, six six to eight weeks. And the uh, director of the center said, hey, "Would you mind? Would uh, you be interested in doing a, a presentation on your research in newspapers and how you use them?" And I said, "Well, sure." And that just kind of got it started. And from there it was uh, it's more than, it's more than just giving presentations. It really is all about sharing and realizing that, you know from, from a genealogist standpoint, it's hard enough to, to know everything, but when we're able to share and, and help others go through the barriers that we've gone through, that really makes a difference. And so that's, that's really the foundation of why I do what I do. It's not for any other reason other than simply to, to help others uh, find family and overcome, hopefully, some of the barriers that I've had to go through.
0: I would really agree with that. In many ways, um, I often tell people that if you aren't also spending time sharing what you're finding and teaching others, you really are only getting 50% of the joy that comes from doing genealogy research. It's just a a lonely uh, prospect on your own unless you reach out. And it's so rewarding, isn't it?
1: Well, it is. I, I mean, we really are. I mean, you think about it. You... You're down in your basement, or you're in your you know, on your computer all by yourself, and getting a chance to share with others. And it's like, is there any better way to do this? And and that's what we have conferences for: is sharing those ideas. And you could have, you know, you could have five different presentations on how to do oral histories. And you know what? They would all be five. They'd all have core information, but there'd be multiple ideas there that, from different people. And that's what we do.
0: Uh-huh. And and I think the the neat thing for me about the internet is that it builds relationships i get to know people when i come to a conference like this it's just been like a reunion of faces and names and and people that i've communicated with and shared information with and then we get to you know get together in person and hang out it's just it's really rewarding
1: very much so and, and especially when you when you've emailed back and forth with somebody 3 or 4 times and and you said hey thanks for what you what you did or uh, i didn't receive what you promised me it's like uh oh i'm in trouble now <laughs> but it is it's, it's it's really a good place to to, to come and, and when you think about it it's not about the you know the the elite genealogists teaching the people it really is it's we're all sharing with each other and some of us have you know the, the maybe not the time but maybe the expertise to share but i learn more frankly i learn a lot more from people after i give a presentation because of the questions they ask and it's like oh that's a great idea i'll but then in the next presentation.
0: Well, you know, I sat in on um, a good portion of your talk this morning, which was kind of taking the Sherlock Holmes approach to family history. Um, first of all, I, I have a couple of questions I'm just dying to ask you about it, but I'm curious, how did you come up with that? It's kind of a great analogy, is using Sherlock Holmes and his pearls of wisdom from the books and applying those to the way you approach your research.
1: I sat in on a presentation probably four years ago where I first heard the, the Sherlock Holmes quote that said, when something to the effect of, when you've, when you've eliminated all the possibilities, what you're left with is the answer from Sherlock Holmes. I'm going, well, that's interesting. So I started Googling, um, uh, Sherlock Holmes in genealogy and found absolutely nothing. And I'm going, huh. What a neat idea! So that's where it came from was was using, you know, just using the the, the concept of of Sherlock Holmes, which really is it's it's a perfect. I mean, he, Sir Conan Doyle does a fabulous job on of picturing Sherlock and how he does his research. But when you think when when I did more research on it, it what Sherlock Holmes really does. It's really um, my father to give you a little bit more background. My father was a, was a detective for a number of years, and and that's really the process that they go through when they're developing a case. And and when I started looking at the parallels between uh, a detective, a policeman, or or even a, a physician when they're doing investigative work on on our illnesses, we all do the deductive relationship and it's just it's just applying it in a different format and when I realized when I, when I started thinking through and looking at deductive research it really it really fit very much with how I believed. but it's the whole idea that uh, that I, I stopped searching for names and I really start searching for people, places and the environment in which they lived and that and that just sped up my research tra- dramatically so it was just by chance but it was just a fun way to approach it.
0: That's so interesting. I have so much the same take on things. Uh, one of our listeners, Amy Ehrman, um, did an episode with us on the Premium podcast, and she's a private investigator today in her life. And we talked about how to be the private eye when it comes to your research. And I, I just think it's it's a very good way to approach things. Now, one of the things I wrote down as you were talking was you said, stop looking for names and look mm-hmm. for families. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Um, when we look for names... I- the traditional genealogists, we we were looking at books, or we we're looking at a in, through a microfilm, and we're just searching for anybody that has the same last name as we have, and and we bypass clues, and so we said, well, I didn't find anything in in Goochland County, Virginia, and you're saying, well, okay, and but then but then when you stop and and think, well, wait a minute, these people lived lived rich lives, and and. So rather than saying, I'm looking for my ancestor, I said, okay, let me put, let me picture my, my ancestor in his time and sphere. What was going on? What type of records were being, being done? What type of, what, what were the community projects that they were involved in? So I started looking at, at not only just for names, but I started looking at, at the churches that people lived with and the communities that they built and who lived next door to who. And, I mean, it, we, we're all familiar with the concept of cluster research, but it's taking cluster research, meaning that cluster research is a concept that says, next door might be my brother-in-law. So we're looking at family and friends and all the people that live around us, and that's a it's a traditional tool that we use in, in t- trying to break down brick walls but I said okay let's take that a step further and let's understand the whole community of what we're looking with and so so this 360 is my ancestor lived in 1750 in the middle of Virginia what records were being developed what were the what was the interaction what were the churches that were in the community where did they come from and so then it just it just began to to open up so many more opportunities for me and then when I started doing quote unquote looking for the name I I understood the signs there were so many other pieces of information that i was bypassing because one it wasn't i didn't know what to look for or two i didn't understand what it is i was looking for and so this is just more the idea of uh of just being able to to get a, a full rich feel of of that time period and and that in in my research really i mean it went from finding one or two names to really finding generations with the same amount of work and the same level, and it's the same, and looking in the same records, they were always there. I just didn't know what I was looking for.
0: D- don't you find um, the human nature is often one of habit? It's also one of um, going towards that which we're comfortable with, whether it's groups of people who pray the way we do or think the way we do. Mm-hmm. And it's this—the kind of logic you're, you're talking about—is rather than thinking of it as a needle in a haystack, look at these people as logical, rich, full-lived people. What would the normal? Where would they gravitate to? Right.
1: Well, yeah, right. I mean, if you think about an idea, is—I remember one one little project that was really fun. Is that I was trying to find the the. Uh, the marriage certificate of, of family. And I'm looking looking around. I couldn't find any in the county where they're at, so I looked at the next closest city, and that city was 20 miles away. and I'm saying, it's got to be there. And then when I pulled out a map and said, well, let's look at the geography. Let's look at all these other things. That, and I said, my gosh, they had to crawl go over a mountain, and there was no road, but there was a steamboat. Let's go downstream. So I started thinking, well, what would I have done?
0: The path of least resistance, That's right. right.
1: And, it, you know, it's it sounds simple, but it really is. But it, but, it, but they take on I think the, the beauty of it you know we talk about the idea of look at pictures and come alive, but that 's really what it is, is is my family for the first time comes alive, and i see them in i 've seen them as more as a uh, simple example. Uh, one of my ancestors looking for was a gentleman by the name of, of maxie Ewell and we 're still looking for him by the way but <laughs> But the idea is, when I started looking at his environment and how he lived, and all of a sudden I came across a piece of information that said that he was a that he that was a friend of Thomas Jefferson. So I said, "Hey, that's interesting." So I went to the Thomas Jefferson collection online, and he has a, a list of all of his letters. So I just put in Ewell as, oh, as a back name, and I found 30 letters that had been correspondence between Maxie Ewell and Thomas Jefferson. But but I would never have found that had I not stopped to see him in the time and places that he lived.
0: And I, and I get the sense from you, I, I think I'm on the right track, that when we do think this way, not only are we going to be more successful in our research, but it really becomes a more enriching experience because we really do start to get a feel for how these people moved and thought and lived. And, um, and that's, you know, what it's all about, much more than just names and dates.
1: Well, you're right. And I think you start asking different questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, such as, you know, when I, when I look at my progenitor, you know, Maxi Yule, and I start looking for him, that I start looking for patterns. And I think that's one of the things you look at, that we, as, as people of habit, you start, I start seeing, rather than records, I start seeing habits and things that he's doing. And in the case of Maxi, I'm seeing that everywhere that Maxi goes, you know, he's going with his father-in-law. And I also notice patterns that wherever Maxi, wherever his father-in-law is going, Max is going, but I also notice that there's also two other families that are going with them. I'm saying, what is it about this group of three or four people? And so it's, it, you begin asking different questions. Why did you do that? Why are you doing what you're doing? And it's through those why questions that you begin to open up, you know, the inquisitiveness that says... Well, perhaps I maybe need to do a little bit of research on family organizations and family relationships in this time period and how they interact with each other so I get a better understanding of why he would have gone with the wise family versus checking out on his own.
0: Exactly. I know when I've found somebody in the, in the census records, you know, and you'll find the mother-in-law living with them or whatever, and you think, oh, thank goodness, I found her. She was with this other family. And it's so easy to shut your brain off right there versus saying that in itself is a clue. Because if she felt connected to them, perhaps other siblings at some point had to come back and live with the group or whatever. So, all um, oh, wonderful advice. Well, Barry, these are all Wonderful ideas, and I feel like I could just talk to you for hours about this because it's, uh, it's definitely an interest of mine. But tell the listeners, if they are interested in learning more about what Barry Ewell is doing and this kind of way of looking at your research, um, how can they find you? What could they look for in the future?
1: Um, we've been working on it for a couple of years. It's uh, coming out in in probably the January time frame. There's going to be a uh, a really extensive how-to uh Website, uh, all the things that we've done, as well as a lot of other things, called MyGenShare.com. M-Y-G-E-N-S-H-A-R-E. dot com. Wonderful.
0: And and what will that entail? What what's uh, the, kind of the theme there? Well,
1: the theme is it really is how to. We the website has over a uh, thousand categories. We'll probably start with with well over 5,000 uh, 5, articles on how to, and probably well over a thousand how to videos um, on on just genealogy.
0: Fantastic. And it's all free. <laughs> we like free. Free works for us. Barry, thank you so much. I hope that we could you will agree to come back on the show again because I just have a feeling you're a man who's got lots to um, share and impart, and I, I think that your approach is just phenomenal.
1: Oh well, thanks. It's just fun to share.
0: We're back and I'm your host Lisa Louise Cook and this is the place in the show where we give you the tools to successfully research your family history. Well you have set up your database, you've interviewed your older relatives, found your first death record and you've scoured your home for family records and clues right? Now we know there are lots of records out there that will help you climb your family tree but what exactly are we looking for? Well that's what we're going to be talking about today. The vast amount of records that were created throughout your ancestor's lifetime, and they are all just out there waiting to be found. But since there are so many different types of records, we've got to know what they are and go after them in a way that makes sense. Now, as you know by now, we start out at the beginning of an ancestor's life, and we work our way backwards to their birth. So this is the order in which we're going to pursue their records. In this episode, we're going to be going over the types of records and then I'll be devoting future episodes to each record type and we'll go in depth on how and where to find them. One thought to keep in mind as you try to figure out what might be out there is this. Anytime a personal change occurred in the life of your ancestor that affected the government or any anytime a financial transaction of some type occurred that involved the government, such as purchasing land... Records were created. And in the same respect, this is also true with religious institutions. Anytime a religious milestone was crossed, a record was created. So as we talk about the various records that we're going to be going to look for, you'll notice that it's often the case that these types of situations were the catalyst for generating the records. So first off, we are looking for vital records, birth, marriage, and death records. Now, let's think about marriage. What's the first thing that pops in your head? Probably a marriage license. Ah, But the happy couple probably gave the government some money before the certificate was issued after the ceremony, and that was when they got their marriage license. And wait, there are really two steps in the marriage license process. Step number one is the application for the marriage license, and that's when the fees are paid. Now remember, money to the government generates a record. So you can look for the marriage license application. Then the marriage license itself is issued. So that's record number two. Then after they say their I do's and plant a big kiss on each other at the end of the ceremony, they sign their marriage certificate. And that's document number three. So actually, right there, you have three governmental documents to be looking for. But it doesn't stop there. This blessed event is also a religious milestone. And so that means that there will probably be a recording of the marriage in the records of the church where the marriage was held. There might even be a mention of it in the minutes of the meeting of the elders of the church, sometime shortly after the wedding. So as you can see, for this one happy event, there are numerous records that you could be looking for. And there will likely be more than actual vital records available. With each of the types of records that we cover today, start asking yourself, would this have made the news? In the case of a marriage, the answer is absolutely yes. And that means that you'll want to add to your list to locate the newspaper from the location and the time period of the wedding and see if you can't find a newspaper article about it. Maybe you'll even get lucky and there'll be a wonderful photo of the happy couple. And these same principles apply to births and deaths. There will be official records with the county where these events occurred. And if the ancestor attended church, you'll find records there, too. And, of course, there's a strong possibility that it was reported on in the local newspaper. I just love finding the newspaper article that goes along with these milestone events. That's where you're really going to get the color commentary, if you will. But just to be clear, newspaper articles are not vital records, and they're not primary sources. And why is that? because they were created after the fact by someone who was not an authority on the event, but rather a distant observer. So while newspaper articles are fascinating and will absolutely provide you with solid clues, they are not primary sources, which means that you're going to want to find solid documents to back them up, or dispute, for that matter, what was reported. Ah, yes, everything in the newspaper is not necessarily the truth, so we'll have to keep that in mind. And finally, death records will more than likely lead you to cemetery records. Not only will you be looking for a tombstone, which will have family data on it, but very possibly the main office for the cemetery will have records on that ancestor's death and burial. In visiting one of my great-grandmother's grave sites, I made a stop by the cemetery's office And they were actually able to pull out the old file, and not only did they have a record of the burial, but they even had a a clipping of the obituary that ran in the newspaper, and they had an original program folder from her funeral service. So that was pretty cool, well worth asking for. Now next on our list is census records. As I said, I'll be covering these in depth in a future episode, but I want to hit on them now so that you have them on your list of records that you're going to be looking for. In the United States, the federal population census is taken every 10 years. Because of privacy rules, the most recent census available to the public is the 1930 census. So we're working backwards. Uh, you would want to start with the 1930 census and locate your parents or your grandparents and your great-grandparents. And then you would go backward to the 1920 and then the 1910 and so on, following them as they move around. The kind of information that you're going to find is going to depend on the year that the census was taken. In general, the most recent the census, the more information you're going to get. Most census records will at least give you the names and the ages of everyone in the household, which is terrific because it helps you see relationships in the family. I will never forget going to a family history library many years ago and locating one of my first census records. Back then, you had to look up a name in the census index book and then locate the appropriate roll of microfilm and then scroll through the film until you hopefully came across the name that you were looking for. It was very labor-intensive. I looked for a very long time for my great-great-grandfather, Conover Briquette, and I was seriously beginning to think I was never going to find him. I found what I thought was his mother and father and siblings in the 1880 census, but he was absolutely nowhere to be found. So I kept scrolling along, and I was getting really frustrated, and then I saw a Jacob Burkett living in that same county who kind of caught my eye. And I was about to continue on when I did a double-take, and I realized there was a Conover Burkett listed in Jacob's family as a nephew. It really hadn't occurred to me that he might not be with his parents. I just about burst into tears there was my great-grandfather's name looking back at me. And just knowing that the name I was looking at was handwritten by a census taker who had personally gone to that home and very likely might have even met him personally was just overwhelming. It really brought it home to me that we are not just looking for names, as Barry Ewell said. We are really trying to find people, real people, people that we're related to, because of them, we are here today. It's, it's a fantastic feeling. Okay, now we're going to move on to compiled records. These are records that were put together by someone else. And if you think about it, there's probably a good chance that someone out there has already done some research on your family tree. And there's certainly no reason to reinvent the wheel. Tapping into compiled records is going to get you off to a great start. If you just keep in mind that there might be errors in there and you will want to be very careful to continue to look for primary sources for key pieces of information that you find, um, you'll be in really good shape. You may have even found some compiled records when you went through your home looking for clues, remember? For example, when I was going through my grandmother's papers after she passed away, I came across an old school tablet from the 1930s where she didn't do that much schoolwork, but she did a lot of doodling and writing out poems and song lyrics. And on a couple of pages towards the back of the book, she wrote out a list of everyone she could think of in her family and included their birth dates, where they were born, who they married, and if they had died. This may have just been a way to pass the time during a boring school lecture, but for me, it was a gold mine, and that is a compiled record. Or you might find something more sophisticated like a published family history in the library or a family tree that's been compiled and posted on a website. So this is all really good news because it means that some of the work has already been done. Next we have city directories which were basically the phone books of yesteryear but uh, they are better than phone books because they often listed who was living in the house and where they worked which I always think is really interesting. And best of all, in many communities, they were issued almost every year, certainly much more often than the census records were taken. So this means that you can follow your ancestors' movements and work history much more closely. You can also get an idea of who their neighbors were and the communities that they lived in. Another great source of records is wills and probate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when a person dies, they can generate a lot of records. And there will be even more records if they left a will. These records can be crammed full of relatives, belongings, and intimate information about your ancestor. I actually ordered one probate record from a small county in Minnesota that ended up coming in the mail to me in a huge envelope, and it contained literally hundreds of pages detailing just about everything that my ancestor owned, his business, and everything that was owed to him by all the customers of that business. It was a fascinating read. So in the future, I'll devote an entire episode to wills and probates so that you can find these treasures too. Now, chances are, if there are men in your family tree, which of course there are, then there are military records to be found. Even men who didn't serve in the military often registered for the draft, and that created a paper record that can be found. Since the military is an arm of the government, it is obviously loaded with paperwork, which means a lot of good data for us. And along with military records, we'll be looking for military histories, photos and newspaper accounts, all that kind of stuff. Again, a topic worthy of an entire episode, which you can definitely look forward to. Another source that you're really going to want to keep an eye out for, but that many people overlook, are published county histories. For example, in the U.S. in the 19th century, communities were being formed and evolved, and the folks in those communities were really proud of what they had accomplished. So many counties went to great lengths to publish comprehensive histories of their origins all the way to current day, naming everyone from pioneers to the modern day prominent citizens, at least modern day for that time when it was written. Well, your ancestries or their families may very likely be found amongst those pages. And even if they aren't, you will still gain a great deal from reading about the towns, businesses, and events that shaped their lives while they lived there. And in one case for me, it was a county history that was the only resource I could find that linked one generation of my family to an entire another family tree that I had located. And it gave me what I needed to know to be able to go out and find the primary sources to then prove it. So I am definitely sold on the value of county histories. For most of you in the U.S., there will come a point in the research process where you will run into the time when one of your ancestors immigrated from the old world, if you will. The immigration of an ancestor offers up the possibility of finding ships' passenger lists and manifests. Immigration often leads to naturalization, which was the process your ancestor may have gone through to become a U.S. citizen. The process was lengthy, and it generated a lot of paperwork, like the Declaration of Intent and actual citizenship papers. While you may know the country that your ancestor came from, it's not as likely that you know the name of the town where they lived or the village where they were born. Luckily, this information was commonly included in the immigration and naturalization records, and it's so important because the village name is your key to locating church records in that foreign country. And don't be intimidated by the idea of looking through church records in a foreign language. There was a rhyme and a reason to the records that were kept, and with the understanding of just a handful of key words in that language, you can absolutely find ancestors in the old world. Now, I don't speak a lick of German, and yet have gone back several generations in German church records. So, all of these... Immigration, naturalization, and foreign church records will all be getting episodes of their own so that I can walk you through it step-by-step and help you find them. And that's going to be really exciting. And when you think about passenger lists, remember that some of your ancestors traveled back to the old country to visit. So there may be passenger lists out there for those trips that weren't part of their actual immigration at all. And that kind of travel, particularly in the 20th century, means there are very likely passport applications to be found. There are paid databases out there that feature passport applications, and I've found them for ancestors as well as famous people like Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, who were going back and forth to Europe in the 1920s. They're a lot of fun, and they usually include a photograph as well, which is really cool. And finally, there are records generated by the simple act of living land records, tax records, and even voter registration records. Are you kind of getting the idea of the vast array of records available? By thinking in terms of our ancestors' life activities and their interactions with the state and with the church, you will very quickly be able to focus in and come up with ideas of where to look. Now, it's probably just about impossible to name every single possible record here, but we've covered a bunch of them, which is going to give us a lot to go on. And as you can imagine, many of these records are now available online, some for a fee and some are available totally free. So next episode, we are going to talk about what your options are so that you can start tracking them down. Here's a final thought for today, taken from one of Barry Yule's favorite sources, Sherlock Holmes. In The Adventure of the Blanched Soldier, Holmes says, I see no more than you, but I have trained myself to notice what I see. And from A Scandal in Bohemia, Sherlock Holmes makes a very good point that all family researchers should keep in mind. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at Podcast at gmail.com. Or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021, and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.